Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. It is Friday, February 19th, 2016. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, almost full complement today. Um, Elliot is not with us today, so we will miss him and hope that he is well. Uh, but we have uh, Erica, Tiffany, Doug, and Gabby. Hey, guys. Hello. 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 So today our topic is water, um, obviously a, a, a vast uh, topic. Uh, it's one of the uh, one of the most well-known and most mysterious substances in our reality that makes up the majority of our planet and our bodies, um, yet we don't really actually know a whole lot about water, despite what you may think. Um, you know, their basic scientific facts are, are known. Um but scientists admit that there is still a great deal to learn about water. For instance, you know, does it have a memory of some sort? Um, are there really only three phases of water, liquid, solid, and vapor? Uh, is there some sort of fourth phase, which is not well understood? Does water actually create energy on its own? Um, you know, does it retain uh, intent? Uh, there are some of these seemingly more esoteric aspects of water, which are actually not that esoteric, when you think about it, they're really just not very well understood. Um, some of these things have been shown to have um, very concrete uh, physical effects on structure of water and uh, things that it does, and so we'll, we'll dive into that uh, today. So it should be a pretty interesting show. Um, so I guess let's just uh, let's get right into it. We, uh, we watched a couple of documentaries this week. Um, and uh, one of them that was very interesting, uh, and we'll get into the other one later, but it was uh, Water Memory uh, was, was one of them, which is on YouTube. Uh, it's about Luc Montagnier, who is a, uh, the scientist who discovered the, uh, the HIV virus, not to be redundant because the V stands for virus, but he discovered HIV. Uh, and then he uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time, uh, you know, researching water uh, later on in his career, and it's really interesting experiments on water memory, wherein they uh, they actually, uh, if I can get this right, um, played like he got the the signature, the electromagnetic signature of the uh, DNA, played that you know in an uh, audio kind of vibratory way into this water. Uh, and guys, correct me if I get this wrong, but then they like, or they they diluted it, they diluted the DNA into the water so much that so that they could safely assume that it was actually no longer in that water. And then they ran audio through the water and recorded it, uh, took that signal, and then sent it digitally um, from uh, France to Italy to a school in Italy, wherein uh, at the other university they then. Um, recorded the, or they took the digital recording that was sent to them, played it back into a sample of water and then read the electromagnetic frequency from that. And there was like a 99% match to the original mm -hmm. DNA. Yeah. Um, so that's I think, pretty I think fascinating. That's, I mean, yeah. And, and even to the point where they were able to actually reconstruct the DNA by putting in kind of the, the, the component parts and an enzyme that is usually used to, to uh, reconstruct DNA, and that enzyme was able to read that electromagnetic signature and reconstruct the DNA. 
that was pretty amazing because the enzyme is the PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, which is a test used to, you know, to make DNA analysis. And it seems that the enzyme, you know, can take the ghost imprint of the, you know, and do real DNA out of it. It was like, you know, mm-hmm. spooky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I mean, was well, and it was also like, very sensitive to electromagnetics, too. Mm-hmm. So when they were trying to film the process, they made everyone turn their cell phones off, and uh, even the camera equipment was emitting uh, enough electrical signature for it to affect the water. Mm. Oh, yeah. For me, that was very surprising because they, they didn't not only, like, switch their phones off, they took the battery out of the cell phone. Mm-hmm. You know, to create the least possible interference, it yeah. makes, makes me think twice. You know, <laughs> yeah. How much is it affecting you, especially if we're yeah. like seventy percent water? Yeah, it was interesting too. I was reading a little bit more about the experiment, and uh, apparently, what they they did um, this they didn't go into this in the documentary so much, but they actually beforehand um, played. Uh, an audio track of the um, the frequency of the earth to the water um, to try and get as as neutral a signature as possible in the water before they started the experiment. So they kind of like, you know, it, it makes sense that they would kind of say, well, you know, if the, if, if the planet is always giving off this frequency, then it makes sense that water is always exposed to this frequency. So to get the, the kind of baseline neutral state, they played that um, frequency to the water to kind of get that, that, that baseline. So I thought that was interesting, too. So do you mean the, the Schumann resonance, the 7.8 hertz? That's I believe that's the case, yeah. 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 It's interesting, too, because I've heard of people using that frequency as a means of kind of uh, kind of getting themselves to baseline, to kind of ground themselves, like using different frequency generation, whether it's audio or I've heard of people using light pulsing as well at that frequency to kind of... Uh, you know, just kind of get themselves back to a to a baseline thing after we're exposed to all these different frequencies over the course of the day. Many of them harmful, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look back at our show with uh, with Larry Bowers, um, you know, we're we're just completely saturated with uh, all sorts of frequencies all day long, and uh, many of them definitely harmful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting too that uh, Luc Montagnier, who's the guy who was uh, um, doing these experiments with the DNA and the sending the electromagnetic signature through water, um, how how much he was like his work was was dismissed by a lot of like you know a lot of the scientific community were calling it quackery and that there had to be some kind of trick and all this other kind of stuff. It's just it's so interesting that you get these kinds of reactions because, uh, you know, it is, you know, it, it is a kind of revolutionary type idea, but just the, like how closed minded um, the scientific community is to this kind of thing. Like one person even re- referred to it as pathological science, you know, and it's, it's just, just this the idea that somebody makes this kind of great discovery. And the first reaction of, of the majority, it seems of the scientific community is just to be completely dismissive and, and to call it quackery. Yeah. Well, the implications are huge, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that he was very criticized in France to the point that he could not, you know, he decided to do his research in China, 
who received mm. uh, who received him. And I think France pretty much shoot themselves in the foot because, you know, it was great research. It was hiring um, um, his teacher or his mentor, uh, Luc Montagnier's mentor, was uh, Jacques Benveniste, that also mm-hmm. did similar research, um, more among the lines of supporting homeopathy. And he was also like, there was a witch hunt, you know, against him mm-hmm. in France. Yeah, they they actually sent scientists and a ma- magician to his lab to watch him recreate the experiment. And I think, like, he was upset with it because I think at one point the magician was, like, doing tricks trying to distract the researchers as they were trying to do the experiment. And every time I've read about, like, the memory of water or Jacqueline of East, it's all, they always put, like, the alleged memory of water or the purported memory mm-hmm. of water or water that supposedly has these qualities it's all like i mean they're just basically saying that it's crap without coming out and saying it out right yeah well apparently to jacques benveniste they just kept on making him do more and more uh stringent things to his experiment and like you know because they weren't satisfied with what he was doing and well you have to do it this way and you have to do it that way until until it failed essentially so they like they put, kept pushing him to to change the experiment until um, it failed, and they're like, "See, it's it failed," and uh, it, it's just it's it's unbelievable. And you know, it, it's funny because uh, Jacques Benveniste, I mean, it's not funny at all. Uh, basically, he was ridiculed so much that a lot of people actually say that that's what led to his death in 2004. That he was so maligned and he lost. Uh, he got. I think he even got sued for um, trashing the name of the institute that he worked for. Um, so it's just, it, it's unbelievable the negative kind of, uh, reception that, that these people get when they're, when they're trying to like do this honest scientific work. It poisoned him. Yeah. And it's yeah. not like he was just some quack off of the street. He was a very mainstream science guy before he decided yeah. to go on to this experiment and they just completely obliterated him. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, just I mean, goes to show that there's these kind of these these areas in science that are kind of taboo. They're like it's kind of unacceptable. Like as long as you stay within the, um, you know what what's already accepted, and kind of just make little little uh, um, discoveries within that, then you're okay. But as soon as you kind of branch into uh, more radical areas, um, you're you're completely maligned. It's like people will not accept it. I have a great quote here by Jack Benveniste. He said, Solemn witch hunts or McCarthy-like prosecutions will kill science. Science flourishes only in freedom. The only way definitely to establish conflicting results is to reproduce them. It may be that all of us are wrong in good faith. This is no crime, but science is usual. <laughs> yeah. He was really persecuted in France. I know that he was. he saw his... Um, his research funding cut, and he was rejected by his peers, and he was finally sacked from his job at France government-sponsored medical research body, which is called uh, INSERM, uh, Institut National de la Santé de la Recherche Médicale. It was a lab in Paris. He was a future Nobel Prize, you know, winner, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but he died before he could uh, pursue that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, even Luc Montagnier is a Nobel Prize winner as well for his discovery, his research on AIDS, HIV. 
um, his discoveries there. He won the Nobel Prize for it. And then people turn. Yeah, I, I even saw one quote where one guy said that for his experiments on uh, water and DNA, he should be given the Ig Nobel Prize. <laughs> It makes well, me wonder, like, what the hell is – I just w- wondering, you know, what what is so threatening about this? You know, <clears throat> I, I I can understand, even though I don't agree with other, uh, you know, aspects of, of scientists being uh, closed-minded and, and, you know, kind of skittish about things that seem fringe. Um, but this – I don't know. Even if I stretch my imagination, this does not seem – that fringe to me that it would scare people. I, I'm curious about, you know, what is so threatening about the, this kind of research. Oh, it's a big yeah, threat I to the status quo. I can't imagine that either. Yeah, I was I thinking can't. about that. I'm, well, yeah, yeah no, but it's a big threat to the like status quo. Individual scientists, I know they kind of always poo-poo certain breakthroughs, but I wonder, like, do they know that it's going to be revolutionary and that's why they do it, or are they just so egotistic and, you know, just want to stay mainstream and get their funding and all that is that a part of it too. I think, I think it is a part of it. opens the doors for, you know, non-materialistic science, you know, so that can be pretty scary for a lot of the mainstream people, you know. Yeah. If and you, it, if and you it look affects at... every aspect of life, every aspect. Yeah. Well, the implications are pretty huge if you look at it from a big, uh, you know, the, the, the system that kind of exists right now. Like if people are able to take electromagnetic signatures of, of a substance and dilute, uh, dilute it in water and make it uh, just as effective or maybe even more effective in some cases, which uh, you can kind of see with homeopathy, um, then think about the, the, the kind of the, the hold that uh, big pharma has and how easily that would be uh, subverted. You know, even if you were just dealing with big pharma drugs, if you just dilute the drug and kind of you can, once you have the electromagnetic signature, you have an an unlimited supply of that drug. You know, you started with one pill and then from there you can, you can treat an infinite number of people. You know, it, 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 it's, it's a a threat to the, the, the cash flow for one thing. But I think that Gabby's Mm -hmm. totally right too. On an individual level, you know, you have this kind of, atheist materialist kind of uh, attitude um, or ethos within science um, and anything that threatens that is, is, uh, is, is taken to be, you know, is de- dealt with very negatively. Um, anybody who, who has this kind of uh, belief that everything must be material, um, all that exists is material reality, then anything that challenges that is a, is a serious threat. You know, what if, what if everything around us is, you know, what if there's more to life than just material reality? Like people, I think a lot of people don't actually want to look at those implications. Yeah. Well, that can explain like, why, why yeah. the experiments didn't work when they kept trying to recreate it. Like if you consider the observer bias, if you go into it with a very materialistic attitude, and if you consider that water has memory and it reacts to both positive and negative emotions, these scientists go in there with such negativity against the water in the first place, then no wonder the experiment didn't work when they tried mm-hmm. to duplicate yeah. it. <laughs> it's the tree water with love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think, and, and you know, when somebody goes into something with the attitude that they want to debunk it, then they will. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll find something to debunk. 
what they're doing. You know, the, the whole point of science is to try and be as objective as possible, to not go in with any kind of bias. But a debunker is not, you know, at the very fundamental level, is not a scientist. They are looking to, they, they, they have an agenda to debunk. Therefore, you know, you, 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 you know it, it's like the whole thing of looking for black swans or looking, uh, you know, I, you know I, I'm, maybe I shouldn't have gone into that because I forget exactly how it goes. But something <laughs> like if you believe that there's only white swans, you know, any, any evidence of a black swan should immediately like throw your theory out the window. But, uh, you know, the, these people aren't looking for black swans and they're, you know, hell bent on only seeing white swans. <laughs> I, I don't know if that was uh, clear or not. <laughs> Well, also realizing that importance of water, too, and all the signatures and how it can be affected at such micro levels, you know, takes away the responsibility of people to tend to the environment and care for it and not, you know, I mean, industrial waste, agriculture waste, you know, it it it, it makes it a responsibility for each individual to do what they can not to completely pollute their environment and then their body as well. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of research also will help to demonstrate how harmful environmental toxins and vaccines are in the body. You know, it has the potential mm-hmm. to do that. And uh, I think, you know, some people might be aware of this because even in the documentary it was discussed how this could open a new door for diagnostics and treatments that is cheap and widely available. And... Um, I don't think that it's uh, of the liking of a lot of corporations. Mm-hmm. Well, even in the vaccine industry, too, you see, um, you know, that that how this kind of uh, information could be a threat. You know, the the whole model of uh, of vaccines is that you take, you know, you take a um, a pathogen and you inject it, so that the you know theoretically the the human will then um, form a natural um, immune response against that, but there's all kinds of problems with that model. But th- this is very similar to what the uh, homeopathy has been doing for a long time, where they're just taking the electromagnetic signature, if that is indeed what's going on, because it's been so diluted that that's all that's left. There's no actual substance, and introducing that orally, so that it actually comes into contact with the the immune system in the way that it normally does. Um, you can see how this would be much more effective than the the current vaccine model, and of course, you know, homeopathic remedies are so, sold for like six or seven bucks uh, versus a vaccine. You know, it's it just I, I can definitely see how this is a threat to what exists currently, and you can you can see why homeopathy is so um, attacked by the mainstream as being quackery and and you know whatever else, and without all the side effects, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess maybe there's, it seems like maybe there's two sides, well, probably more than two, but there's the, the just regular kind of uh, pedantic, um, you know, uh, scientific bias who says, you know, well, this is weird and this is strange and it's not normal to me, so I'm going to be scared by it and, and fight against it. There's this that like very basic emotion, um, and then like you said, you know more uh, profit motivated, actual uh, strategic plan, you know, against some of this information coming out. Mm-hmm. Well, looking into the history of the AMA, 
uh, American Medical Association. Uh, there's been several books written about how, you know, homeopathy was actually quite prevalent in, uh, mm-hmm. I guess it was probably like the 1800s. Um, you know, there were schools set up that were completely dedicated to homeopathy, and the American Medical Association basically formed and came in. And some people even say that their whole raison d'etre, like the reason that they came to be, was to push out homeopathy. And they were quite successful in doing that. Um, you know, it was very common for doctors uh, in, you know, the uh, the 19th century, even the early uh, early 1900s, um, to travel around and in their kit they would have homeopathic remedies. You know, that was part of what they, they used to treat people. Um, and But once the AMA came in and kind of standardized everything, that was completely pushed out. Um, so to find a doctor, you know, a medical doctor that actually uses homeopathy now is extremely rare. It exists, but it's, it's pretty rare. And it's still being attacked to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because they say, you know, one of the common uh, arguments against homeopathy is that there's no science um, showing it to be effective. But that actually is completely untrue. There's been lots of uh, journal articles that have shown positive results from homeopathy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it just kind of shows the argument's uh, ignorance or the arguer's ignorance to say something like that because it's just clear that they haven't bothered to look. Mm-hmm. Well, um, let's see here. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the imprinting of water, which I think is is quite interesting. Of course, you know, like I said at the beginning, this is a vast uh, topic. We may not be able to touch on everything, of course, during this show, but we wanted to cover some of the main points and some of the stuff that you might not have heard about. But I don't know um, how many of our listeners are familiar with uh, Dr. Masaru Imoto. Um, mm-hmm. But he, uh, you know, people may be, um, I remember coming across this a number of years ago. She's like, I would say almost 10 years ago now. Um, but he uh, he did some very interesting experiments with water crystals uh, holding um, different uh, structures, different crystalline structures based on the intent that they were infused with. And so some people would, um, you know, would speak uh, things like I love you, you know, I care for you, uh, you know, compassionate uh, emotional phrases uh, to the water. And the, the crystal structure of the water would then turn out to be very beautiful and symmetric. Um, whereas when they spoke or directed uh, kind of hateful intent or disgust or anything you might consider kind of on the negative side, the, uh, the crystals were then uh, malformed, uh, asymmetrical, um, sort of, you know, aesthetically uh, ugly. And uh, I think that was, that was very interesting just on, on the face of it, just that one result uh, itself, you know, and that's mm-hmm. not even delving into what the water might then do, um, mm-hmm. you know, once it, once it retains that kind of structure. But uh, I had tried this uh, for some time in the, uh, in the past when I first learned about this experiment and, you know, would tape uh, little messages on my water containers, um, you know, like love, peace, uh, perseverance, things like that. And I can't say I, I didn't do it, you know, from a scientific perspective, so I can't, like, cite anything specific. Um, but I do remember uh, doing this to water that I've uh, used to water my garden with, and it actually had quite a fruitful year. Um, 
the one year that I had tried that. So that's pretty, from my layman's perspective, that's the best I've got. But I don't know, have you guys mm-hmm. ever tried, you know, imprinting your water, uh, you know, before you drink it or use it for anything? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I talk to my water now every single day, every time I get a glass of water, and I use distilled water. And I tell my water that I love it, that thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if it's a placebo effect or, you know, as we were discussing previously off the the show, like placebo effect is sort of, you know, it's a pretty amazing thing anyway. I think Mm. I have noticed a positive effect overall. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah, I've been trying that recently too. but I've heard about, you know, people taping messages onto their water like a long time ago. I don't know if it was as much as 10 years ago, but when I first heard of this, too, I tried that. I can't remember exactly what I taped onto my water bottle, but something positive. And I can't really say that I noticed any big difference. But recently I've been telling my water that I love it and singing to it and saying thank you for being mm-hmm. so yummy. <laughs> it's really good anyway. I mean, water is pretty much all I drink but for seasonal tea or something. So I'm really grateful that water exists. Mm. So I guess that's something I could impart to my water every time I take a sip. Mm. Yeah, one cool thing about the Dr. Emboto experiments was when he just kind of took water from various places around the planet and, and kind of would uh, freeze it and then look at the the crystals that it formed or the lack of crystals it formed. Um, And, you know, all these places like fresh springs and waterfalls and all that kind of stuff would form these beautiful kind of crystals. And then tap water from all kinds of different places all over the planet was just like they they basically didn't form crystals or they would be, like you were saying, Jonathan, completely malformed and like um, just makes you realize you know, you know, we don't know for sure that there's a negative effect from drinking water that doesn't have this kind of beautiful structure to it, but uh, we can we can assume that it does. So, uh, you know, if you think that most people around the planet are drinking tap water, um, it's it's you know, if it does in fact have a negative effect, I mean, that really says something. Yeah, yeah, I found it interesting in an interview that um, talked about how. Uh, he got started on this work and it was basically he just he learned that no two snowflakes are identical and if snow has crystals then water should too and that's kind of what started him on this whole adventure and uh they like you said Doug he started studying uh water from waterfalls and and you know it took some trial and error for them actually to get the the images the way that he ended up photographing them later on. But I just thought that was fascinating when you think about snow and and each droplet of water having its own signature. I mean, the implications of that alone are huge. Mm-hmm. It was also impressive to see in one of the documentaries how, like, fields, agricultural fields that were watered with structured water you know, they yielded more, you know, better quality products. You know, it was bigger, it was, like, more nutritious. And the ones that were watered with tap water, it was like, you know, the difference was striking, you know. Mm-hmm. So that alone is, is yeah, it's food for thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another interesting on... part of his experiments was that he would play classical music to some of these crystals, and it would kind of, like, 
grow and become even more beautiful. And then other times we would play heavy metal music and it was just mm. ugly and made yeah. me wonder because I like some heavy metal, but some of it <laughs> is more melodic than others. I mean, some mm. heavy metal is like pretty jarring and ugly. So I wonder what type of heavy metal <laughs> he played to those water crystals. Yeah, I started wondering about that, too. And, you know, if you can assume that uh, because we are mostly water, then listening to certain types of music are going to have more of an effect than others. I would like to really see more experimentation with different types of music and what it is about the music that actually changes the structure of the water. Because like, I do wonder about that, too, Tiff. Like, you know, I, I get into some kind of heavier music sometimes, too, or you know, some uh, like electronic music or something like that. And I honestly wonder what it is about the music that is, is uh, you know, causing these changes that you see. Is it just that it's kind of chaotic and, and uh, you know, maybe, or maybe it's the intent behind the music. Like if the intent of the heavy metal music is to, is, is to have, you know, express rage or um, some sort of uh, negative emotion, and that's what you're going to see in the water. Uh, yeah, I'd really, I'd really be interested in seeing more um, experimentation on this. Yes, mm-hmm. an atlas, an album of photographs with each song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had seen seen some experiments with that in the past, uh, not specifically with water, but it implies, you know, the effect on water, which was with plants, basically playing um, beautiful melodic music to plants and having them grow, uh, you know, fully and uh, in, in a robust way. Uh, and then playing, you know, like thrash metal or death metal um, on the same token and, and having them kind of wither and, and be uh, yellow and small. Um, so, you know, I guess you, you could infer uh, from that that, the, uh, that the, the vibrations or the intent of the music is having an effect on the, on the water within the cells of the plant itself. Yeah. Yeah. I often wonder about that kind of thing because I know it's kind of like classical music always gets the, you know, the, the pass. Like classical music is, is kind of the base. Oh, well, that's the, you know, the, the more pure music and, and what will have a positive effect, whereas anything outside of the classical genre is kind of um, considered to be, you know, uh, negative in some way. But, you know, if, if you think about the intent behind a lot of that classical music when it was written, it was like the music of the elite, right? Like it was, you know, the elite would yeah. kind of um, pay for these uh, genius musicians to make make music. So, I, I don't know, maybe I'm off in left field here, but I, I just wonder about, you know, if a, if a guy kind of making electronic music in his, his bedroom at home but has like a, a pure intent would would have the same uh, or even maybe better effects than this this kind of classical music. That that's my own bias showing through there because I'm not a big classical music listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, to reassure you, no, it's not only classical music that had beautiful structure water, it was also some melodic songs like Amazing mm. Grace. There was a photograph um, about it. it was <laughs> okay, so there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great point. I mean, that music really like, affects um, my water. <laughs> <laughs> I think of Doug, what you said about classical music, like uh, Wagner, you know, who wrote some ostensibly really beautiful music, but was a, uh, a Nazi, you know, Aryan supremacist. Hmm. Um, you know, the intent uh, behind what he was thinking, you know, was he was he picturing and, and uh, you know, imagining the master race while he was writing this music, and is that intent infused into it, even though it sounds very beautiful, modestly? Mm. Um, or 
uh, oh, I had another example in mind too. Um, thinking about, um, oh shoot, no, nope, I'm losing it. It was right on the tip of my <laughs> tongue and I lost it, but you get the idea. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you said, could the, you know, is the intent actually more powerful uh, than the music itself? Cause I, I used to play in a number of bands and uh, I played in a punk band in the past and that kind of thing. And I've known people who played thrash metal you know, or I guess you would just generally call it thrash metal who were very, very nice, very compassionate, mm. very loving people. They just like that style mm. of music, you know? So is there a chance that their intent could come through that music, even though it sounds very jarring? Um, it's probably more complicated than that. I would imagine it's, it's the music itself plus the intent of the composer or the, the, the player, um, the musician, uh, plus you know, the intent or the state of mind of the person who is, is present with the music. Um, mm. You know, it's probably this, like, uh, cumulative uh, effect of, of everything, you know, in the in the environment, wherever that's happening. Well, that opens up a really interesting discussion, too, because, you know, is it the intent or is it the, 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 the means of communicating that intent? You know, is there a difference between, you know, if you wrote something on your water in one language versus another language? Is one language maybe more efficient at conveying that intent? Um, is one piece of music more um, more able to communicate an intent in some way? Is it just the intention or is it the means by which it's communicated? That's, that, it's, it's a good question. It's clearly a lot more research that needs to be done on this. Or is it the vibratory signature of however you choose to communicate to your water? Like, the, the oscillations or the frequencies who knows yeah i mean is there a difference between just writing something on it or does it need to be spoken mm-hmm. or can it just be thought mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah all very interesting well, along, questions yeah along those lines uh let me play a clip here from uh this the other documentary that we had watched this week was called water the great mystery and uh, let me just quickly post that in the chat here. I also put a link in the chat if our listeners are, are looking at the chat on Blog Talk Radio to um, the uh, the Water Memory documentary and the um, Dr. Emoto documentary. But here is Water the Great Mystery. There's a link for that. Um, so we have a couple clips from this one. And the first one is Konstantin uh, Korotkov's um, talking about uh, how human emotion uh, affects water. And this is just a short clip. We have a few of these, so let me play this one and then we'll, we'll discuss. We have carried out many experiments on the effect that quite diverse factors have on samples of water. Magnetic fields, electrical fields, various objects, and also including a human presence and human emotions. And it became clear that positive and negative human emotions are the strongest element of influence. Professor Korotkov's laboratory has conducted numerous experiments on the effect of human emotions on water. A group of people were asked to project onto a flask of water in front of them very positive emotions like love, tenderness, and concern. Then, the flask was replaced with another one, and the people were asked to project emotions of a different type. Fear, aggression, hatred. After this, measurements were taken on the samples. 
the water exhibited changes that were clearly in one direction or another. So love increases water's energy levels and stabilizes the water, while aggressive emotions reduce the energy and make radical changes in the water. So that was just, you know, intent, kind of like what mm. we were talking about. That was not necessarily even spoken. It was just directed uh, thought energy. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, very interesting. That makes, that makes, that makes me think, uh, if you take this from kind of a bird's eye perspective, uh, so follow me for a second here. If we have, so you can say that the world has always been, you know, a, a, a kind of negative place. You know, there's there's always been, uh, as far as, you know, recorded human history, whether you go back, you know, five, 10,000 years, um, there's been war, there's been psychopathy, there's been death, you know, all of these things, um, negativity. Uh, that's not to say that there's not been any positivity, but it's all it's always been, you know, a, kind of a harsh place. Um, however, now in our modern era, we have so much more, electromagnetic radiation based on the technology that's been developed. Um, we have uh, these signals being carried through the air everywhere, uh, through the cell networks, um, through the radio signals. Um, you know, so all this music is being played over the radio and that's being broadcast everywhere. Everybody's uh, intent that's in their phone calls or their text messages or their emails, uh, you know, or that's on the internet. That's, that's, uh, if, if this is where it gets a little bit esoteric, that say, hypothetically that intent is impregnated somehow in the electromagnetic signals that were so saturated with these signals that they're getting into the water everywhere, you know? Um, mm. And so it's, it's getting like kind of harder and harder to escape. You know, could this be magnifying the effect of human emotion on a more uh, global scale on the water that we're surrounded by and the water in our bodies? Mm. That's, that's what it kind of makes me wonder about. Yeah, another really good, good question. Point. Yeah. But I think if I understood correctly in the documentary, uh, they all, they did, you know, several re uh, experiments on, and the research was concluding that human emotions have had the strongest effect, even more mm -hmm. than other signals. That's what I understood. Mm -hmm. But still, it begs the yeah. question, you know, like what you say, like, but what if the human emotions are completely like influenced by this other stuff, you know, so you could really have to like, so to speak, set aside some time or intent to specifically like meditate and talk to your water in a specific way. Yeah. It makes me wonder if you started off with something that wasn't the best water, like tap water or something like that. And, and you tried to, you know, you imprinted an intent on that water if you could actually change it, you know, if you could actually take this water that is less than ideal and make it better. Well, there are a couple of stories they told in that uh, documentary, Water, the Great Mystery. Uh, there's uh, a ship's captain and some survivors of a shipwreck, and they were mm -hmm. on this little boat or dinghy trying to make it back to shore and they were really, really thirsty. So they started imagining that the water surrounding their boat was like pure water and not salt water. Mm. And the captain dipped his hand in there and drank it and it was pure water. 
and <laughs> they changed the water around their boat just with their intent. And I think there was another story about some heretic or something that was put in a dungeon, and they just gave him a crust of uh, mold or stale bread and a dipper of polluted water to drink every day. And uh, they thought that he would, like, you know, crash, like, health-wise, but he just seemed to get stronger. And then he confessed that uh, he he prayed over the water, and the water mm. became pure and drinkable. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And with time, he was, he was looking younger and healthier, <laughs> despite his... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes me also think about the Ganges in uh, India how it's like one of the most polluted water sources in the world, yet people bathe in it and drink it and, and all this kind of stuff, and they aren't they don't seem to be negatively affected by it. So, you know, it, it's also considered a very spiritual, uh, holy place. So I wonder if it's just, you know, the intent or the, the perception of the individuals who are, are bathing in it has, has an effect on it. And also the draw there um, on the Ganges is where Varanasi is, where people pilgrimage to die, right? Mm. So if they die at this sacred place, that they'll, you know, bypass so many incarnations or whatnot. So not only are people bathing and drinking this water, but they're also uh, sending burning bodies down the river, you know, Mm. so it's, the significance of everyone's belief that this is a holy healing water. Mm-hmm. I, see, I see a new product in the works here, the, the Bodhisattva <laughs> water purifier. <laughs> <laughs> well, those kinds of products have come out. You know, I've seen um, there are, you know, bottled waters that have been, you know, prayed over by Tibetan monks or something like that. And, um, you know, it sells for ridiculous amounts of money with and people just, you know, a lot of people like perceive it as just being the biggest scam because, you know, it's basically water that they're selling at this premium price. But the idea being that because it's been, you know, this intent has been kind of infused into the water, it will be, um, you know, medicinal in some way or have, have some kind of positive effect on people. Mm. Yeah. Well, again, back to that idea that water has memory, you know, and that it receives and makes imprints of the outside influence, and it remembers everything that occurs Mm. in the the space around it, you know. So, again, Mm -hmm. that idea of intent, if it's positive or if it's negative. So maybe with, as you were talking about the Ganges, Doug, there's such an intense belief system behind the healing properties of that water that, People are, are, you know, released by it or they're healed by it. I mean, there's many places yeah. in the world that are like that. Uh, another one is Lourdes in the south of France, right? Mm-hmm. With, uh, mm-hmm. St. Yeah. Bernadette and Miracle. the healed waters. Yeah. Mm. So well, maybe uh, there is a scientific explanation after all. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this article on SOT called What is the Fourth Phase of Water? And Gerald Pollack is a, a researcher, scientist. Uh, I think he's in Oregon. And um, I think they they tested some samples from the Ganges and Lourdes in France. And it showed, uh, the water showed spikes in the 270 nanometer region of infrared light. And that suggests that 
the holy water from these regions have high amounts of EV water. So maybe we can get into some of the, well, what the fourth phase of water actually is and why mm-hmm. this could explain why this water is healing. Yeah. So um, we get into a little bit of Pollock's work. He says that water just doesn't have three states, like liquid, solid, and vapor. There's actually a fourth phase of water in between where water goes from being a liquid to freezing. And he called it easy water, which means exclusion zone water. And it turns out that this this type of water is not H2O, it's H3O2. And it has a negative charge and a gel-like consistency. So that water kind of holds a charge. So maybe that is what where the the memory is contained in water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found that fascinating because he also explains he gives examples to illustrate his point. Like for example, the the, the knee joint. You know, the bones should be by gravity. Should really be crushing each other <laughs> despite the liquid in the joint. But because there is easy water or gel like substance in the cell, you know, it actually expands and it makes it that the joint works, you know, perfectly fine, you know. So yeah. it could explain yeah, like a lot of biological properties. Is, yeah, the <laughs> collagen in your joints is easy water and it's gel like. That's what makes it not squeak when you walk. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting work. Uh, 66% water by volume, and then all the molecules that form in the muscles are almost 99% water. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, apparently our audience knew about this easy water before we did. So <laughs> water, you're, you're buoyant, you float, mm-hmm. as opposed to sinking. Mm-hmm. It could also explain why, when you have arthritis or or arthrosis, why far infrared saunas are so healing, because far infrared uh, the far infrared spectrum creates easy water in your body, you know, and in water. <laughs> mm-hmm. That could probably explain why people who have arthritis they move down to a sunny region and spend some time in the sun. Uh, that probably makes them feel better because the infrared light coming from the sun kind of charges the water inside of you and turns it into mm-hmm. more easy water. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could also it explain why cryotherapy. Yeah. And I was thinking among those lines, it could also explain why cryotherapy or cold adaptation could be so healing because apparently, um, you know, when you're um, it's like the fourth phase is in between like the water state and the freezing state, you know. Mm-hmm. That's how I understand it. Oh. Yeah. So maybe that's yeah, why it's that. so good to drink water and then do some cold therapy and then go outside and sunbathe for a while and charge yeah. up your <laughs> internal battery. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting because they, they, the, the common thought on that whole reason that arthritic individuals seem to get better in a sunnier environment, people always attribute it to vitamin D. And, you know, that might actually be part of the, part of the, the thing there, but they might actually be missing this, this larger piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, because a big 
problem with arthritis is that it doesn't get that good of circulation in those joints that are affected. And Gerald Pollack said that uh, when you get that certain uh, 270 nanometer sunlight or infrared light on you, it actually moves the water in your cells and it creates like this flow and that would improve circulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, similar in plants too, like mm-hmm. photosynthesis. You know, mm-hmm. you put a tarp over a tree and it will die. Gerald Pollack's work is really, really interesting. Um, the whole exclusion zone thing, what, what he discovered was that as, as you get closer to um, a surface, um, the water that's in contact with that surface, it, it kind of like for, you know, thousands of molecules away from that surface, it creates this exclusion zone. And that mm-hmm. uh, water that's close to the surface actually um, it, it forms a, a structure. So that's when, when people refer to structured water, that's what they're talking about, that, you know, these water molecules form into a structure. And that doesn't mean that they necessarily become solid or anything like that, but that they kind of form, you know, the molecules group together in these structures. And the molecules within those structures are constantly changing. Like, you know, they might, they might uh, uh, it, it's not that one set of molecules forms the structures and, and then stays there. It's just that the, they'll constantly be, uh, replace so it stays it stays in that liquid state, but it forms this uh, this structure. Um, and what he mm-hmm. says is that because there's like the cells of our bodies are so packed with stuff, um, you know all the different organelles and all the different proteins and things that are in our cells. You know around all those surfaces, you have this um, the, creating this easy water. And uh, because of that, um, the cells are actually filled with easy water. It isn't regular water that's mm-hmm. in the cells. It's actually this easy water. Mm-hmm. It makes me think, too, of um, <clears throat> anybody who lives near a uh, a giant body of water where it gets cold. It, you know, like, um, so I live on the, on the coast of Lake Superior. And uh, every time when we get into the winter, you'll notice that as the lake is freezing, um, there's a certain period of time um, before it actually, the surface turns to ice where it's not necessarily like, it's not floating ice and it's not like super liquid water. It actually looks kind of gel-like. It moves very slow. Uh-huh. Um, mm. The waves don't break the same way. And so I, that that makes me wonder if, you know, is that this exclusion zone water transitionary phase between um liquid and, and uh, crystalline. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it. It yeah. has a higher viscosity than regular water is what Gerald Pollack said. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also seems like that might be an explanation for the whole memory of water phenomenon. You know, that maybe it's this structured water that because, because the water molecules are forming these structures, they become these little containers that are actually capable of holding something. Um, and I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't think anybody knows the, the exact mechanism behind it, but it, it kind of looks like a, that that's the kind of direction that things are going in, that maybe these, these structures are capable of holding, uh, you know, a frequency. Um, so despite mm-hmm. the fact that there's no particles left in, in water, when you're doing these kinds of experiments with, uh, with DNA or when you're we're using homeopathy, um, what's actually held there in that structure is, uh, is the frequency. Yeah. Well, um, 
Let's see. Let's go to another couple of uh, clips from this documentary. We have. Um, <clears throat> so we were talking a little bit about the idea of like the the holy water, you know, or or blessed water. And there's a, a short clip here about um, you know religious incantations and and water and, and the effects that that has there. Traditional Eastern medicine has been based for many centuries on the vibrations and resonance of the body's water content. The pulse indicates if the resonance tone is right. It is believed that the pulse may be strong, weak, cold, or hot. On the basis of this, an experienced physician carries out a kind of energy scan of the body, makes a diagnosis, and prescribes treatment. We do not heal with water, because a person, the human body, is water. The person simply reads the mantras or prayers in order to correct the bad water he has inside. How this hidden effect works is not known. In all of the world's religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, it is the practice to recite a prayer before taking food or to consecrate the food during major religious holidays. How often do we stop and think, what for? And how did the certainty arise in such dissimilar religions that this is the right thing to do? Why did something that science is only now trying to understand seem obvious to our ancestors? It turns out that the frequency of vibrations in the prayers of any religion uttered in any language is 8 hertz, which corresponds to the frequency of the oscillations of the Earth's magnetic field. Therefore, a prayer, pronounced with love, creates a harmonic structure in water, which is an ingredient of absolutely all food. We now have some idea about how this happens, through the structurization of water clusters, water molecules. Therefore, we can take some purely practical advice from this, to sit down at the table in a very good mood and under no circumstances to dine with cruel or aggressive-minded people, because this will have a direct destructive effect on our health. So that was pretty interesting. I, there's some a few things in there that I was kind of skeptical about, just in the documentary itself, like, you know, all religious incantations come out at 8 hertz. Uh, I guess I'm not 100% convinced. But the the idea of it... Um, the idea of the the incantation or the prayer or whatever you, you do having an effect on the on the water uh, either in your body or in the food you're eating um, that I guess that makes sense to me you know especially based on mm -hmm. the uh, Emoto studies and, and the other studies that have been done. Well, that made me so, think uh, that originally when people started praying over their food or blessing their food, like many eons ago. I wonder, it seems like it's just a ritual now that really has no meaning, but maybe in the beginning there was a pure scientific basis behind them doing that, and it just got kind of watered down over the centuries. Yes. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, while, while we're on that track real quick, I have one more clip about uh, holy water, so let me just play that so while we're, we're on that same topic. All of mankind's sacred books contain stories about people who were able to create miracles because of their profound spiritual knowledge. Legend tells us 
that the sea parted before Moses because of his unflinching faith that the Lord would not abandon his people. We have totally indisputable evidence that prayer influences sick people to get better, and it's caused absolutely fantastical recoveries, such as the spread of gangrene suddenly stopping in a person who already had it. With holy water, when it is poured over sick animals or a dying plant, they revive. Those are the facts, and no physical chemist currently is able to understand it. They simply can't. January the 18th. It is the eve of the Orthodox Feast of the Epiphany. Two flasks are filled with ordinary tap water. Early in the morning, one of them is set inside the church near the vessel over which the sacrament of sanctification is to be performed. Every year on January 19th, the faithful and even non-believers hurry into churches to pick up some of the baptismal water. It is believed to possess extraordinary properties. In order to confirm or refute this, the two flasks were taken to the laboratory for study immediately after the service. Here. The water was frozen in a cryogenic chamber and photographed under the microscope. The crystals of the tap water looked like a chaotic, diffused spot. While the water that had been in the church had the rectilinear symmetrical form of a six-pointed star. It is well known that holy water has a very powerful and stable structure. This water can pass its properties. Take only 10 grams of it and dilute it in 60 liters of common water, and the whole amount will have the properties of the holy water. Perhaps scientists will tell us sometime what prayer is. Perhaps scientists will tell us sometime what happens with human nature under the influence of divine grace. Sorry, a little bit of an awkward end to that clip there, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, speaking again to what we were talking about, that the intent, um, you know, is infused on the water and... Uh, it, it makes me think, you know, like, of course, I, I don't know if any of our listeners are Catholic or not, so I, I don't, I certainly don't want to offend anyone, but I also don't want to tiptoe. Uh, basically, the idea being anyone can make holy water. You know, if your intent is correct, um, you know, and you have the water in your, in your presence and you have the, uh, the, the clear-minded uh, intent of what you're trying to infuse it with, um, you can do that yourself, you know. Uh, you don't have to be a, a, a sattva or a, a priest, you know, or, or somebody who's of this, like, high religious order. Basically, it's not this, like, super secret practice. It may just be, um, 
a very basic uh, kind of psychological slash physical phenomena that, that, that we can all do uh, to the water that we have. So I think that that's very interesting. Well, I think Emoto's uh, uh, experiments kind of show that. You know, they, these guys, the, the people who are infusing their intent on the water weren't, uh, you know, monks or, you know, highly religious individuals necessarily. In a lot of cases, I think they were just scientists. So I think uh, I think that mm-hmm. speaks to that for sure. Like you don't necessarily need this kind of special training to be able to meditate for 20 hours a day or something like that. Like that, it it, it is kind of a, a more mundane phenomena than that. Yeah. It's interesting that they talk. You know, Emoto uh, froze his water, and uh, sort of these guys that were talking about, you know, uh, examining the holy water, and with the the idea of the exclusion zone, uh, the transitionary phase between liquid and frozen. Um, uh, I guess I, I don't have a clear idea in mind, but it, it seems to make sense that if that transitionary phase is what makes it more impregnable with intent you know, that as it passes into the frozen state and then the crystals are formed, then you have, you know, this uh, this structure representing the intent that was put into the water becoming mm-hmm. evident. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that the, the, the freezing component is, is entirely necessary. I mean, it's kind of like that That makes an easy way to, uh, to, to visualize, to actually see the crystalline structure. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, in lots of situations, the, the freezing component is not actually necessary. I mean, Luc Montagnier's uh, study didn't require freezing water. Um, homeopathy doesn't include any kind of freezing in the process. Um, but there are sure. other ways of kind of creating this this exclusion zone or this structured water. Um, what uh, Gerald Pollack is talking about how uh, vortexes, like creating a vortex within the water, will uh, will cause that structure to happen. And interestingly, um, uh, in that documentary, I don't know if, uh, if this is one of the clips that you uh, were going to play, Jonathan, but they were talking about how um, the in, in nature, water kind of follows this kind of meandering, curving path that kind of naturally creates these uh, vortices, um, kind of causing this structured water to, to, to be created versus when you see uh, the way we use water, uh, we have all these pipes with right angles and, and there isn't this kind of natural flow to thing. It's all very jarring and hard turns. Um, and that actually um, makes it so that y- what they call it is dead water at that point. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, uh, it loses that structural capacity. Yeah, I didn't have that specific clip, but that was a very interesting part. Uh, how we water spear. And sorry, how the Eric, water? Um, oh, sorry. Just couldn't hear you very well. Oh well, in that section that Doug is talking about, how we uh, pollute water spiritually, and how water adapts to stress, and uh, it makes it dead by going through all these, you know, artificial means to get to your home or to get to the crops or. You know how how mm-hmm. it how it's channeled and it takes all the life out of it essentially, and then mm-hmm. we drink mm-hmm. that and and the implications on the body. Mm-hmm. Not to mention yeah. how many chemicals we dump in it to clean it or fluoridate it or whatever else. To clean it, and yeah. If water holds, if it holds the memory, like if you think of the municipal water supplies. 
like has all these medications in it and people's urine and hmm. all kinds of bodily fluids in it and then they treat it and put all these chemicals in it and then on top of it they channel it through all these pipes. I mean, no wonder the water is dead and mm-hmm. lifeless. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, I guess that could be seen as a little bit more of a, an esoteric side to this thing, but I don't know. It, it makes, um, it makes concrete sense to me personally. Um, you know, that it, you know, if you've ever drunk water out of a, a stream, um, there's just something about it, you know, and it's hard for me to describe, but it, it really is, uh, a, a much different experience. Um, and speaking to the structured water too, it's interesting, Doug, like you mentioned the idea of it going through these right angle pipes, you know, or through, uh, filters and all these kind of things, as opposed to coming to us, uh, in the natural way through the flowing, uh, curves, you know, that are present in nature. Um, like you were talking about, you know, vortexing water. It's very interesting, like um, making it spin and, and kind of uh, follow that that pattern so that it's able to restructure itself. There's also a lot of stuff on YouTube um, about structured water. Uh, you can kind of get lost in it uh, if you're not careful. There are tons and tons of videos. There's one very interesting uh, content author uh, that I've, I've watched quite a few times. His name is Jason Verbelli. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him at all. Um, yeah. But if you look mm-hmm. up, go to YouTube and look up Jason Verbelli, Structured Water. And he's done a bunch of his own personal experiments on it and uh, actually built a structure out of there. Similar to, there's other ones that you can get as well. But he built one that's kind of like a cylinder that attaches to the end of your hose. Uh, and inside the cylinder are spheres, uh, are like acrylic spheres, so that when the water flows through the spheres, it goes in these natural, in like a, a sine wave pattern, you know, and it curves around the spheres before it comes out the end um, so that it, it kind of restructures it in that natural um, kind of curving flow. And he cool. has done ex- he's done experiments on his lawn where it was totally parched and dry and, and, uh, and like yellow, watered parts of it with straight uh, tap water out of the hose and then other parts of it with structured water. And the structured watered, grass was like super thick and dense and dark green and really lush. Um, and the, the, the stuff that was watered with tap water was not. Um, so I thought that that was very interesting and that you can find that on YouTube. Um, wow. but he actually goes, it's in, there are a lot of really interesting videos. He goes through, you know, how to build the unit, uh, how to set it up in your house. And he's got this whole kind of Rube Goldberg type contraption with, you know, fish tanks where it's running in and out of different structurizers and just huh. running a number of tests on it. And so um, it's something that I've, I've wanted to get into, but I've never had the, uh, the gumption to actually build anything like that. But the, the structurizer, I think is, is very interesting. Um, you know, either, you know, from the perspective of water that you're going to drink uh, or if you have a garden and you're watering your garden or your lawn, um, you know, like check out the, the structurizer and give it a shot. Is but that the guy who that, built I, this little contraption out of PVC pipes and it has a little acrylic spheres in it and you just pour the water so it flows yeah. through that little pipe? Okay, I think I've yeah, seen that one. <laughs> yeah, th- there are a number of those, actually. He's not the only one, but his, his videos, personally, I find the most compelling. Um because he's very well-spoken and, and goes through a lot of different aspects of the experiment. But there are other people who actually build and sell those units that you can just buy. 
Um, some of them have uh, spheres that have like hexagonal dimples on them. You know, other ones have like the the sphere structurizer and then a vortex at the end of the unit so that it spins if it's coming out. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things that you can do there. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know which one is best or which one is right necessarily, but I think doing something like that to your water, um, it, it, the, the results, you know, are, are there, you know, that it works, that it becomes more energized, uh, more vital, and it has a, a more healing effect on whatever it comes in contact with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking in that movie too about how animals would, um, always choose water from a spring as opposed to, oh, yeah. you know, tap water too. Mm. So it's almost like they can surf its natural energy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Smart animals. <laughs> <laughs> There's, we do have a little clip uh, from the documentary about structured water, so let me play that here, and then maybe we can uh, talk about it a little more. With modern technology, it is possible to structurize water artificially. When seeds were grown under laboratory conditions using this kind of water, the soy sprouts had six times greater photon radiation than when ordinary water was used. Using structurized water makes vegetables ripen faster and increases the amount of useful microelements and vegetable proteins several fold. If we look at the shoots, the treated ones were long, even, and strong, while the untreated ones were short, thin, and weak. If we look at the plants today, those from the selected seeds have all ripened, but the ones from non-selected seeds have not. We have to say that using structurized water really does affect the growth of vegetables and fruits. For the purposes of irrigation, 20% less of this type of water is needed than when using ordinary water. No fertilizer was added to the soil or the water. The chemical composition remained the same, H2O. The only thing that had changed was its structure. At the present time, scientists can answer the question of how this happens, but science does not yet have an answer to the question of why. So that's interesting. And if you, uh, if our listeners watch that documentary, that's Water the Great Mystery, um, in that section where they talk about structured water, they show one of these units in a garden that looks like kind of a cylindrical attachment to a hose where the water's coming out the end. Um, and I guess based on our discussion, it seems to me that it has something to do with restoring the the curving organic nature of the flow of the water as opposed to it um, having gone through uh, all of these, you know, right angles and um, sitting and stagnating, you know, in certain reservoirs and then coming back out or being treated and then, you know, having all these things done to it um, that, you know, one way to make it more beneficial is to restore that natural flow. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it seems pretty interesting to me. Might have to get out the blender after the show and pour <laughs> <in> my water. <laughs> well, it's really uh, hopeful this idea that you can correct what's been done to the water, that it is malleable mm -hmm. enough that even if it's gone through all these treatments and hit these right angled pipes, that you can still kind of do something at the end of the line and and restore it. Uh, I, I find that mm -hmm. very hopeful. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
Yes. Well, I've seen a contraption where they take like two two liter bottles, empty bottles, and they fill the top one with water and they turn it upside down and they let it run into the two liter bottle underneath and that kind of creates a vortex mm. as well. I, guess I might have to try that as an experiment. Yeah, so it's really basic, very basic steps that we could take, you know, to restore the natural flow of water. Mm. And that's a really good thing to have, and it does make me feel hopeful too, because I mean, not everybody has access to spring water, which is supposed to be the best because it's under pressure and it gets that structure to it, and uh, it has that natural flow, and also glacial melt water, yeah. like. Uh, People who live downstream from glacial melt, I mean, they supposedly have, like, really good health because when it starts to melt, it turns into this easy water, and the more easy that's contained in your water, the better it is for your health. Mm-hmm. It's interesting also the uh, just talking about plants and how the water in plants is this easy water. And uh, Gerald Pollack in his book talks about how that explains some things that were previously unknown about plants, like, for instance, when you take uh, the, how the plants are actually able to make the water go up these tiny channels within to get to the top of the plant. And if you look at something like a redwood tree, you know, you're talking about serious distance that these, the, this water is able to travel. And without taking into account the idea of structured water, it seems like it would actually be impossible, given the pressure, um, that the water would actually be able to travel up all the way to the top. So it's kind of like previous to this idea of, of easy water or structured water, it, nobody could really explain how this happened, but it just did, kind of got glossed over. Nobody really talked about it or looked into it too much. But uh, the idea of the structured water actually explains how this is even possible. Yeah. And nobody thinks about the fact that plants can break through asphalt when they grow. If they grow yeah. in the street, for example. Yeah, unbelievable strength there. Yeah, there was something in that documentary about how um, when a seed uh, germinates and begins to grow, it it, it achieves like 400 atmospheres of pressure, Hmm. which is why they combust through concrete. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of things that this structured water actually can explain that previously was unknown. Uh, Pollock gives a couple of uh, different examples. One of the ones that really struck me as interesting is the idea of sand um, and yeah. how when you have dry sand, you know, you sink into it, your weight um, just kind of pushes right through it versus when you have wet sand and you're able to kind of stay on top of that. And it's like, well, how does that happen? You know, why, why does the addition of water make this sand suddenly stronger and able to withstand more pressure? It, you know, it, it, from a conventional point of view, it doesn't really make much sense. Uh, yet that's just something that, that science has never really explained before. There was another one, too, that he talked about, gelatin. You know, when you have uh, gelatin, the amount of water uh, compared to protein in a gelatin structure, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be able to hold. You know, unless you look at this structured water component, um, it, it, you should actually have your jello leaking water all over the place, but you don't. It manages to hold mm-hmm. in this structure when you have, uh, when you have gelatin added. Um, I, I can't remember the figures that he uses specifically, but it's basically like it holds way more water than it should from a conventional perspective. So it, it's all these like kind of mundane things that we're con- con- confronted with on a daily basis that we've never been able to explain before. Yeah. 
it, it is really fascinating. I think, you know, kind of like Tiff said, I think the cool part about this is that you don't have to have access to high technology. Um, you don't have to have a bunch of like money or resources to, to do these experiments. Um, and I would encourage our listeners to, you know, don't think of this as something that's just in the realm of like science in the laboratory. Um, you can try it out yourself, you know, try, try mm-hmm. spinning your water, try speaking to it, uh, infusing it with your intent. Um, you know, either building a structurizer or if you have the money, you know, pick one up um, and, and see if you notice um, the effects from it. There was somebody on our, our forum who had mentioned that uh, <clears throat> they noticed that when uh, uh, kind of meditating, you know, uh, positive intent on, onto the water that when they tasted it afterwards, it actually tasted kind of sweet. Uh, and mm-hmm. they then shared that with a friend of theirs who also said, yeah, this is weird. Like, did you put sugar in here or something? Like, it tastes a little bit sweeter. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So that, you know. Well, another that thing that made, I thought of. Oh, I was uh-huh. just going to say that may be some kind of a, like, placebo effect. But, you know, even if it is, the the idea of placebo is pretty fascinating in itself. You know, like, what's what's going on there? Like, what is actually making that change? Mm-hmm. Well, another thing I thought of trying, you know, uh, if I can't make a vortex or get some glacial water, is putting ice in the water. So when the uh, mm-hmm. ice starts to melt, that phase between solid and liquid, that's the easy phase. So maybe you can add a little more easy to your water just by putting ice cubes in your water. And another thing I thought of trying is to just put your glass of water in the sunlight. And see if that. <laughs> I also thought. Yeah. Yeah, I also thought about that. You know, exposing your water to the sun, like charging. A I've seen a. I've seen YouTube videos where people expose their water to magnets, like the the North Pole of a magnet, mm. to try to give it more energy. Yeah. Yep. That's also in um, in Jason Gravelli's experiments. He does that with magnetized water as well. I would just say if you're gonna put, if you're gonna put your water in the sunlight, be careful what container it's in. Like ideally, you want glass. Um, yeah. You know, but if it's a, if it's a plastic jug, make sure that it's not leaching. Yeah, what is that number two plastic? You want like the food grade stuff that's not gonna leach into the water. Yeah, I wouldn't use plastic. But that makes me think of the structure of your water containers. But I think somebody on our forum mentioned that too. Like. A lot of water containers from, you know, antiquity are, like, rounded or have some kind of roundness to it, and maybe mm-hmm. that offers some, some structure versus, like, a square container that you would hold mm-hmm. your water in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the movie they showed a, um, an ancient teapot, and unfortunately I can't remember what culture it came from, but it was a very strange kind of shape. Like, it, it had a very long spout that almost went... Um, directly up at one point before um, before kind of curving around. Um, and that made me think that, you know, just that structure in and of itself is kind of forcing the water through um, something that would, would make a, a vortex happen within the water. Um, so it, it's, yeah, there's, there's kind of something to this idea that maybe the ancients knew something that we didn't know. You remind me about holy water. In certain religions, they shake the water as if it was contained in a pendulum. 
it goes back and forth, back and forth, and mm. so. And yeah, that makes idea. me think about uh, that. That makes me think about uh, the homeopathy. Like within homeopathy, when you're you're creating the um, the remedy, um, part of that uh, the process is to succuss it, so you hit it. And it's kind of funny, like the the original um, guys who uh, like um, uh, Hanneman, who the creator of homeopathy, actually always insisted on hitting it against a Bible. And, uh, it was, it, you know, it, it did, the idea, you know, I was speaking to a homeopath about it and I was asking about this, you know, why would, would you, you know, why is this part of the process? Why succuss it? And what he was saying is that what you, what it does is, um, makes the, uh, frequency diffuse throughout the entire solution. So like every time you're hitting it, it kind of like transfers that frequency to the next particle over. So, you know, they're, they're succussing it a great deal, like, you know, a thousand times, hundreds of thousands of times, and it kind of just diffuses that frequency more and more throughout the entire solution. So I wonder if that whole, like you're saying, Gabby, about the pendulum was the same kind of idea, that it's this kind of succussion uh, process that, that kind of uh, makes that frequency that you're, you're trying to uh, create um, diffuse more throughout the solution. Yeah. Well, let's see. I've um, got a few more clips here that I would like to uh, play. One of them, um, since we were kind of a little bit ago, we were on this topic. Uh, there's a clip here about how water affects um, blood cells, and then another one that's a little bit more about um, water retaining uh, information, like how it can exchange information. Uh, so let me play these two, and then we'll we'll discuss. Let's imagine that here we have a human being and here we have water this water contains many different types of information if we introduce this water into the human body then that human body will assimilate this information which may change the person's characteristics human being and uh, that may change. Let us see how this type of water affects human blood. The doctor is drawing blood from a patient's finger. Using a special microscope, we shall be able to see the condition of her body from this drop. These are red blood cells and they've lost their electrical charge so they're all stuck together in a formation called a rouleau. Here's a huge symplast. Symplasts are associated with heart disease and uh, arthritis and lung disease and many other conditions that could be coming in the future. The doctor asks the patient to drink a small amount of structured water. After 12 minutes, the doctor again draws blood from the patient and studies it. So you can see that the cells then become buoyant, they become slippery, and they have their electrical charge, so they repel each other. That allows them to carry oxygen, and it means that we're changing the pH of the blood back to an aerobic environment rather than an anaerobic environment. I think that's utterly amazing that that a water could, that just drinking water could do that. We water. 
We studied water during solar eclipses and when Comet Schumacher-Levy was passing, in those periods of time. And it turned out that a tissue culture in water, when a solar eclipse is in the offing a week ahead of time before the eclipse, when everything is still far ahead, it already begins to fade. The water showed a direct connection to the event. The system of the universe exists as a single perfect organism. All of its parts, including us and our Earth, are inseparably bound together by huge streams of information. And on our planet, water plays the key role in how the information is exchanged. In effect, it is the medium through which all nature is governed. So, just thought that was an interesting tie-in, you know, talking about <clears throat> information exchange and how water appears to not only retain but actually transmit information on a base mm -hmm. level. And, uh, you know, uh, in our one of our recent shows when we were talking to Harrison, you know, about psi phenomena and talking about information theory, um, I'm sure water has a, a big role uh, to play in that on our planet because it's such an integral part of everything. Uh, it's an interesting thought to me that it, that it is uh, perhaps, you know, the, the basic uh, mode of information transfer. Hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's pretty interesting when you're talking about the eclipses and stuff like that too. Like the the idea that there's kind of uh, a you know we're we're receiving information constantly from the cosmos. So the idea that the kind of water is aware of that even a week beforehand um, and will change is is pretty fascinating. It is. Mm -hmm. Well, that made me think yeah, was... of ice ice ages and like why the earth needs periodic ice ages maybe you know when uh, a large portion of the earth is covered with ice for a period and then the water melts is that a way of kind of like cleansing the water and cleansing out all the the negativity that's held in that water because mm. usually when ice ages occur there's like maybe some kind of catastrophe that happened beforehand and maybe that's just a way of I don't know, starting with a clean slate. So, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the bad memories and the negativity is become super dilute in that water and then things can start all over again. Yeah, like cleansing the environment, like kind of a reset. Yeah, mm -hmm. planetary reset. Yeah. That is pretty fascinating, too, when you think about the, uh, you know, the, the flood idea you know the idea of the great flood or the the submersion of atlantis um kind of you know uh throughout history we have these uh examples of, of water you know erasing and resetting the current situation mm. i mean the sorry i mean the documentary was not only the eclipse it was also comet uh, shoemaker levy right mm. Mm. <laughs> They 
sorry, Gabby. Say that again? Oh, um, in the documentary, they talked about how Lao Tzu, over 2,500 years ago, had this interesting quote about um, nothing in the world is uh, softer or more yielding than water, yet it wears down the hard and strong, and none can overcome it. So anyone can conquer it, that which is yielding conquers the strong, and the soft overcomes that which is hard. Everyone knows this, but no one dares to live by it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can certainly take a lot of uh, inferences from these studies, and I think if nothing else, at the very least, uh, if it can allow you to, you know, have a little more uh, situational awareness throughout your day, you know, think more about your your body and about the uh, the things that are around you and the things that you take into your body. You know, everything contains water, so it's not just the water that we're drinking. Um, you know, it's the uh, it's the food that we're eating. Uh, it's the water that we're bathing in, um, <clears throat> and you know, it has this all-encompassing effect on our lives. And so I think it's, it's important to think about. Um, and, you know, if you don't, you know, I hope that our listeners would be able to retain the, the important aspects of this. But what I was going to say is at the very least, even if you don't, just allow it to let you uh, think more deeply, you know, about life mm-hmm. and about your surroundings. Um, you know, it, it lends an interesting overlay uh, to your daily experience when you think about mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, everything within and around us is transmitting information at all times. And so it, it really, uh, it has an effect as to what your uh, attitude is, you know, what your outlook is. This is not to say that, you know, you can just make everything better by thinking it's better. Um, but it is to say that our intent has an effect on our bodies and on the environment around us. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, keep that in mind um, and try some experiments, you know, try, try singing to your water or labeling it with a, with a compassionate or positive um, word or phrase, you know, or try the structurizing experiment and just play around with this and see if what, what you can notice if it has any effects. Yeah. And it's not just the water that we drink. I mean, you can do experiments on yourself because we're made of so much water, like over 60% of water depending on how old you are. So maybe like a positive intent with yourself, you know, what kind of information or music that you expose yourself to. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe even spinning could have an effect on the water inside of yourself. I mean, who knows? I mean, this opens up a Mm -hmm. whole, you know, field of experiments that we all could try. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, uh, we are nearing the... uh, the end here, so let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment. Uh, she's also going to be talking about water today, um, and we will be back after this. Hello, and welcome to the uh, pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to talk to you about the importance of water for pets. First, let's talk about how much should your dog or cat drink. Most dogs need about an ounce or 30 milliliters of fluids per pound or roughly half a kilo of body weight per day. 
So a 10 pounds or 5 kilo dog needs a bit over a cup of clean water daily. Really active or lactating dogs may need more and puppies generally drink more than adult dogs. If your dog drinks a lot more than that, it may signal a health problem. It all depends on his activity level, size, age and the weather, but in general an average dog needs to drink between 8.5 to 17 ounces of water per uh, 10 pounds. It's 55 to 110 milliliters per kilogram per day. So you need to know what's normal for your pet. It's important to know what's common for your dog or cat so that you can tell if they are not feeling well. Pay attention to how much he's drinking. You can even measure it out occasionally to have an accurate read. Then if it, he seems to be slowing down or increasing his intake, you will know something is up. If it's dramatically different, see your vet. If it's mild, look for other symptoms. Diarrhea, coughing, lethargy, lack of appetite. If there is a combination of any symptoms, uh, also get uh, your pet to a vet for tests. What about cats? Uh, as for cats, the amount of water drunk by an individual cat depends on a variety of factors, including the cat's size and activity, the season, and whether the cat's diet includes wet food or dry cat food only. Factors such as high heat, exercise, or lactation can double or triple the amount of cat drinks. And of course, diseases such as hyperthyroidism, uh, kidney disease, and diabetes will also greatly increase the cat's daily water requirements. So how much should a cat drink? A normal cat's daily water requirement ranges from 5 to 10 fluid ounces per day, or an average of 60 milliliters per kilogram per day. Uh, cats eating canned food will receive much of their daily water needs from their food, since canned food is about 70 to 80% water. In contrast, dry food is only 7 to 10% water. Uh, normal cats eating canned food may need to drink less than one ounce or 30 milliliters of additional water per day, uh, whereas a cat uh, consuming only a dry diet may need to drink over 7 ounces or over 200 milliliters per day to stay hydrated. This high amount of water can be very difficult to achieve uh, because cats are not prone by nature to drink large amounts of water. In nature, they get all the fluids they need by eating their prey whole. Uh, now you may understand why nowadays kidney disease is considered to be an epidemic among cats. Cats are simply not designed to eat dry food. Another important thing that we need to keep in mind that the water we give to our pets should be clean. We all know that public water systems can contain certain levels of bacteria, but we know that that's why we are drinking the safe water. Uh, still, many continue to, feed the, to fill the pet bowls with tap water. Animals like humans need water to survive, we all know it. And like humans, animals are about 80% of water. So most animal experts will agree that pets should be given the same amount quality uh, water as humans, bottled or filtered. The problem is that uh, municipal and well water can contain many harmful things, even parasites. And they don't discriminate between pets and people. Some people feed their pets bottled uh, water and can cause more problems than they think. 
bottled water is extremely expensive for once, and some bottled water is just bottled uh, tap water. This means pets can still be harmed by the contaminants in the unfiltered water. Tap water can especially pose risks if it's high in iron, magnesium, or nitrates. Uh, these contaminants can cause health issues for your family as well as your pet. One of these parasites is Giardia, a single-celled uh, organism that ends up uh, living in a mucus lining of the intestines. Uh, Giardia is transmitted by discharges of fecal waste into water, food soil, and other surfaces. Uh, this parasite can cause diarrhea in animals as well as humans. If it's a puppy or kitten, is, uh, if the puppy or kitten is suffering from uh, malnutrition, the effects of Giardia can be worse. Uh, treatment in the form of antiprotozoan drugs can be administered to, to infected animals. There are also things in water that can cause cancer or brain damage, just like in humans, fluoride, for example. Giving your pets filtered water will remove a potentially sickness-causing uh, organism or metal from being ingested. On a side note, uh, cats are very finicky about the water. They like it fresh. The longer the water sits out, the more oxygen it loses. Fish who live in the water can be greatly affected by water with high levels of uh, chlorine or ammonia, a chemical used in some treatment plants. And certain pH value is needed in tank water for fish to have a proper living environment. Also, poor quality water uh, can be more prone to bad algae. Uh, check with the aquarium retailer for specifics. For amphibians and more wet pets, they do not drink water but absorb it. Frogs, salamanders, and other in this category need water to absorb through their skin, and the higher that quality, the longer they will live. One more note of interest. It doesn't really matter what type of water is used in a pet's bowl if the bowl is not cleaned frequently. Bacteria can grow from mold in the air in your pet's bowl, so clean the bowl often and keep it filled with fresh, preferably filtered water. Additionally, as was already mentioned, drinking more water can also reduce urinary tract uh, disorders and kidney disease in cats and dogs. So how do you know if your dog or cat are dehydrated? The pet's gums are the best indicator of dehydration. Lift your pet's uh, lips to expose the gums. Place your index finger on the gum and press your finger flat into the gum. This temporarily squeezes blood out of the spot, so when you release your finger, the blood should return in less than two seconds. The response will be delayed if your pet is dehydrated. Gum moisture is also a sign of dehydration. When you pull your finger away, uh, the gums should feel very wet. If your finger sticks to the gum, it is a sign of dehydration. When water ratios fall 5% below normal, pets will start to uh, show signs of dehydration. Other signs of uh, dehydration include sunken eyes, dry mouth, poor skin elasticity, elasticity uh, lethargy, uh, increased heart rate, and constipation. Monitoring and encouraging your pet's water levels can help you prevent dehydration. With water being a crucial part of a pet's health, 
it is no wonder that many pet supplies manufacturers offer water fountains, water filters, special bowls, special dispensers, and, and much more. When it comes down to it, though, a normal stainless steel or glass bowl filled with clean water works just as well. You can obviously you can find a water fountain, and because it's much more fun uh, for cats, for example, who like to drink running water from running water. Well, this is it for this week. Hope you found the information useful. Uh, have a nice weekend and goodbye. Well, those are some well well hydrated goats. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <clears throat> we uh, we don't have a recipe for today. Um, we had just kind of, or they had uh, intended to uh, to have you know the the idea of the water experiments be the recipe for today. The, the interactive part, the thing that you can try. Um, so, but we do have a caller. Uh, so we're going to uh, go to Clay uh, here before we. Before we end the show, Clay, how's it going? Pretty well. How are you guys? Good. Hey, Clay. Hi, Clay. What uh, What's on your mind? Well, um, I just wanted to talk briefly um, about the chemical component of water. Uh, something that <clears throat> I found to be, you know, pretty unique in uh, the world of chemistry. Uh, ever since, you know, back in even high school, and then some of the chemistry classes I took in college. Uh, something that <clears throat> kind of, you know, just always piqued my interest. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to be brief on this, but it is a little bit of a complex uh, thing. But um, like I said, it's very unique to water, and I think it has to, you know, has a lot to do with, um, you know, some of the properties that you guys have been discussing with water. So I think it's important. Anyway, um, so... In chemistry, you learn about uh, three different major bonds uh, between elements. First uh, being an ionic bond, which is kind of a give and take, where the elements will actually, um, a negative element and a positive element will actually, uh, they'll, I'm sorry, the positive element will actually give off, I'm sorry, <laughs> let me start over, the negative element will actually give off an electron. Electron is a neg negatively charged particle. It will then uh, uh, revolve around the positively charged element, and then they create this kind of electronic bond. It's actually a really strong bond, very hard to break up. Uh, there's also the covalent bond, uh, which uh, both elements share the electron, so it, it uh, revolves around both of them simultaneously. Well, therein uh, comes in to water. It is a polar covalent bond between um, uh, a hydrogen element, uh, two hydrogen elements, and um, uh, I'm sorry, one hydrogen element and two oxygen elements. Uh, anyway, so what happens is with water is the uh, the electron from the hydrogen starts uh, revolving around the two oxygens and the hydrogen simultaneously. Well, since oxygen is such a bigger element than hydrogen, it, the electron spends more time around the oxygens. Uh, so it creates kind of this 
uh, false positive uh, charge on the hydrogen end of the molecule and a false negative charge on the oxygen ends. And so water, as the molecules kind of line up, they kind of line up in this uh, neat little array where you've got the two negative charges of the oxygen uh, elements that are going to attract the positive uh, portion of the next molecule. Uh, so you've got these oxygens lining up right next to the hydrogens of the next molecule. Well, they all kind of move in this fluid pattern. And uh, so you can imagine, that, you know, if just one of the molecules uh, has some kind of a, a, a positive um, reaction, you know, say to a blessing or something like that, that all the other molecules are then going to follow suit. Um, which I find interesting, too, also because uh, there's a hydrogen bond that holds the, uh, the DNA molecule together. Um, so it's, uh, you know, very, very important to life. It's important to all life as we know it here on this planet. Um, and so as the DNA strand unzips, uh, it's actually breaking those hydrogen bonds. Um, and uh, just very key to, to human existence, to, to uh, life as we know it. And uh, I just wanted to bring that up um, just because of the discussion we've been having. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really all I wanted to add. Yeah, that speaks to the uh, like the the chemical kind of uh, evidence, you know, for this sort of uh, energetic connection. I guess the connection between what we might consider like etheric or more information based, and the uh, the physical chemical bonds that are taking place, like how they might work together. Yeah, exactly. it also makes you realize how how unique water is on this planet. You know, yeah. that, that, that this isn't something you see in other forms of matter. It's uh, it, it it really makes you realize like how important, but also how unique water is. Yeah, it really is. You know, and there's also something else that's really unique about water is that it's the only substance that takes up more space, but has less mass in its solid state compared mm-hmm. to anything else on the planet that we know of. Wow. So, anyway, well, well thanks for having me. Great show, great. guys. Yeah. Thanks, Take care. Long, Clay. Thanks. Yeah. You're welcome. Appreciate that. That is your turn for thought. Mm-hmm. Totally. Very cool. All right. Well, that uh, should give everybody something to think about, and that is the uh, the end of our our show for today. So. Um, Clay, thanks a lot for calling in, and thanks to our chat participants. Um, if you uh, if you have the chat open still, be sure to check through there for the links uh, to some of the documentaries that we talked about. But just to reiterate that, um, there is the uh, the water uh, water memory uh, documentary about Luc Montagnier, um, and then Water: The Great Mystery, uh, and as well a documentary about Dr. Masaru Imoto. Uh, water crystals. Um, those are all on YouTube, and they're really fascinating. So if you get a chance and you're looking for something to kind of spark your brain, um, check those out. And uh, you know, also go go down the uh, the structured water rabbit hole if you have some time and search uh-huh. YouTube for 
super structurized water. There's a lot of really interesting things there. Um, so, again, thanks, everybody, and be sure to check out uh, the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, uh, The Truth Perspective, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern time, uh, and Behind the Headlines, which is on Sunday uh, at noon Eastern U.S. time. Um, those are always really great shows, uh, and should check them out. And we will be back uh, next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, with an interview with uh, Lynn Farrow, the author of The Iodine Crisis. So if any of our listeners have been uh, learning about iodine recently or perhaps trying the the iodine protocol, uh, we will have some good information about that next week. So be sure to tune in for that. So thanks again, everybody. Uh, Have a great weekend, and we'll see you in a week. Bye. Bye.